1: As millions of acres have been ablaze across Australia in recent weeks, those wildfires have formed incredible smoke plumes that tower thousands of feet into the atmosphere. These pyrocumulonimbus clouds can transport massive amounts of smoke and ash into the sky. And some of that smoke has even been found to have circled the globe. Today's guest is Dr. David Peterson from the Naval Research Lab, and his research focuses on the far-reaching impact these monster clouds have, including how they generate their own weather. We'll discuss what techniques he used to observe these clouds and whether or not we can expect more of them in a warming climate. Dr. Peterson, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Hi, it's great to be here.
1: Well, you know, th- let me just establish some of your background. Uh, Dave's a meteorologist at the Naval Research Lab since 2012. He got his bachelor's degree at Valparaiso, uh, Valpo. I, I know that well. My former colleague, Dr. John Knox, was there. Uh, and also his master's and Ph.D. at the University of Nebraska's master's in geosciences and his Ph.D. in earth and atmospheric sciences. So uh, when I tell you that he is one of the top experts on this really fun- fascinating phenomena called Hyrocumulonimbus, he is. And I look forward to talking about those. But before we do, i like to ask my Weather Geeks guest, how did you become interested in meteorology?
0: So I grew up in northwest Indiana, very near Chicago. And that's an environment where it's very easy to be a Weather Geek. There's all sorts of phenomena. I remember growing up with a variety of severe weather, so damaging wind events, uh, large hail, there were also several tornado outbreaks that cost, uh, got my interest. Uh, one was the Plainfield tornado in the early 90s that many people may remember. That was That Not far from where I grew up. But then we also had the winter weather. So every kid wants to have a snow day, right? So I was always interested in, in if we were going to have a major snowstorm. We had a few blizzards. But one of my uh, most favorite phenomena growing up was a lake effect snow. Being on the south end of Lake Michigan, get those snow bands uh, during the winter, and I always used to wonder, well, why is it bright and sunny here at home, and and five or ten miles down the road, they're getting a foot of snow? And so that really sort of piqued my interest in the weather and kind of led to me uh, majoring in meteorology at the university uh, down the road in Valpo.
1: Now, I'm curious, how did you get from this general interest in meteorology to studying wildfires and smoke plumes?
0: Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting switch. Uh, when I started grad school, my first summer, I actually did an internship at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center out uh, in Maryland. And that's where I got introduced to the wildfire community, realized that wildfires are actually a global phenomenon. They occur in many regions worldwide and have important uh, impacts. And so that sort of started my track down that road program in grad school was actually remote sensing of fires, so looking at fire activity from space. And then as I came to the Naval Research Lab, which is a, a, an institution that actually has a long history looking at the uh, atmospheric effect of fire, especially these pyrochemio events, well, that, that sort of led one thing to another, and I've just been doing it ever since.
1: Now, I want to pivot because one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, on Weather Geeks is a fairly timely uh, episode, given the bushfires that we are seeing in Australia and, and other parts of the Southern Hemisphere. First of all, just give us a little 101 on these bushfires. I mean, it's, it's, it's normal to have bushfires. They have a bushfire season. Uh, so give us a little insight on how normal a bushfire season is and whether this one is particularly anomalous.
0: Right, so Australia has a fire season just like California or the Western U.S., except they're in the Southern Hemisphere, so their fire season runs roughly from November through March. And every year, just like California, there are fires in Australia. But this year, there was an extremely large number of fires, and not only a large number, but a lot of very big fires. And that started roughly in early November and has persisted through their summer season, which is the winter season here in the Northern Hemisphere, and so it, it all sort of culminated right around Christmas and New Year's. Really big fires that were also producing thunderstorms.
1: Now, I mean, what what causes these bushfires? Is it anthropogenic or human started fires? Is it lightning? What what sparks these fires? I know it's dry there as well, and it's it's the middle of the summer. It's been quite hot, and we can touch on that. But I'm I'm, I'm interested in what the ignition sources are.
0: So, I know the ignition source is, is still very much under investigation for many of these fires. Uh, in a natural sense, lightning plays a role every year in Australia, uh, but there are also anthropogenic sources. And so, I would say this year is, is a mixture of all of the above, but again, there's a lot of uh, ongoing investigation to determine exactly what caused each fire
1: now in addition to the fire i was in fact as last night i was watching the australian open and i know they've been dealing with the the smoke there and it has hampered some of the uh tennis tournament and even forced some players to quit uh, you know smoke is uh, one of the incredible aspects of these wildfires uh, other than just making things hazy or smell bad um, what are some of the health hazards of smoke well
0: smoke can have a variety of effects uh It's very small particles, so they can be ingested into the body. And one of the things we do here at the Naval Research Lab is we actually forecast where these particulates will go. We run a global aerosol model, so smoke is just one type of aerosol particle. And we can forecast where it will go and how it will persist, and that relates to the air quality uh, impact.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that, because I, I want to get into these pyrocumulonimbus, but before I do that, talk about these smoke models and why, why are you using them? Why are they important?
0: Right. So there are a number of modeling centers worldwide uh, that are interested in the effect of particles in the atmosphere. That can be smoke, dust, pollution, sea salt. Here at the Naval Research Lab, we, uh, we forecast all of them on a global scale. and one of the, the primary impacts that the Navy is interested in is the impact on visibility or the propagation of energy through the atmosphere. But you can imagine that there are a number of agencies interested in human health. These particles are, are, are affecting health as well. Uh, so there are a number of different reasons to do this and a number of different applications. And here at NRL in Monterey, uh, we actually have one of the original aerosol models, so we've been doing this now for at least the last 20 years.
1: Wow, and, and and just just some basic information about smoke. Since you are the experts on these things, I mean, how high can smoke from these fires reach?
0: So, uh, when you get a typical wildfire, you can inject smoke several kilometers above the ground, and that's a problem that's plagued the, uh, the modeling community for a long time. It's like what altitude do you put the smoke when you start a simulation? But in extreme situations, when you get a thunderstorm to develop over a fire, then you can inject smoke of very high, and in these cases it's at least to the altitude of uh, jet aircraft. And sometimes it, the updrafts will be strong enough to actually penetrate the stable boundary between the troposphere, which is the layer of the atmosphere we live in where the weather occurs, and the stratosphere, which is a much more stable environment. So In some of the most uh, powerful updrafts, you can get smoke that actually is injected directly into the stratosphere in a way very similar to, say, a volcanic eruption.
1: I am talking with Dr. David Peterson from the Naval Research Lab. Uh, he's an expert on smoke, wildfires, and something that we're about to get into called pyrocumulonimbus. And by the way, again, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Bear with me as we uh, talk this podcast because I'm, I'm still getting over a, a little cold as we're taping this. So my apologies if you hear me sniffle every now and then in the podcast, but we'll we'll get through it. Now, let's let's talk about these pyrocumulonimbus or what we call pyro because you've kind of mentioned them already. Give the listeners a little 101 about what a cumulonimbus cloud is and then how that differs or is similar to a pyrocumulonimbus cloud.
0: Right. So a cumulonimbus is a fancy term for a thunderstorm. It's a large, vertically deep cloud that is producing precipitation. Now, if you stick pyro in front of that, you're essentially saying that you have a thunderstorm that's triggered by wildfire. So everyone has seen these big towering thunderstorm clouds with the extend several miles up into the atmosphere and have an anvil cloud blowing downwind. Now imagine if you put that on top of a large and intense wildfire. That's the Pyro-CB mechanism. So it's the heating from the fire is actually fueling the updraft of that thunderstorm. And that means that a lot of the smoke that's being released by the fire is being pulled and accelerated directly into the updraft and into the cloud. So you essentially create uh, a chimney, if you will. It's a chimney-like effect, taking smoke from low altitudes and rapidly injecting it to much higher altitudes.
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: So piracy have some unique characteristics. Uh, One of them is just because there's so much smoke being pulled into the cloud you have a lot of particles for water to condense on. And it actually changes the properties of the cloud to where you end up with a lot of tiny particles. Usually it's tiny ice. That makes these clouds very inefficient for producing precipitation. So you very, very little, if anything, falls out of these clouds. But you still have the mechanism in place to produce lightning. And so you can have lightning strikes. And, and sometimes prior have been known to spark new fires near the environment where they've developed.
1: Now, I I remember as we're taping this, a week or two before, there was a a volcanic eruption and there were these tremendous pictures of, I guess, a volcano-induced pyrocumulonimbus with just amazing lightning. Essentially, that's the same process, right? It's very similar. Uh, The only difference is
0: volcanoes have a, a different type of chemistry and a different composition, but it's the same effect. You're producing a cloud, and as long as you can produce a charge, you'll get lightning strikes. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door.
1: On the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking to Dr. David Peterson, who is with the Naval Research Lab, meteorologist there, has been there since 2012. He also has some uh, interactions with NASA that we'll talk about a bit later. But I want to stay with pyrocumulonimbus clouds for a moment because they also, and you've alluded to some of this, but they also can create their own weather. Talk a little bit about the fire intensity and internal dynamics associated with these pyrocumulonimbus in terms of stability, relative humidity, et cetera.
0: Yeah, we've spent a lot of time looking at the environment, or the meteorology, if you will, that's required to develop a fire seed. Because there are, are a lot of large wildfires worldwide each year, but only a handful of them go on to produce fire seed. And so the the process starts with a fire that's large and intense enough to produce uh, a hot bubble or a pretty strong updraft. So near the ground, you need weather that would support an active fire. That's your typical dry, hot, and windy conditions. But of course it's the full three-dimensional structure of the atmosphere that matters. So uh, near the ground as that smoke plume rises you don't want a lot of wind shear. Uh, you have to keep the smoke plume vertically oriented as it moves up into the atmosphere. So very little turning of the wind with height and it needs to be unstable in the low levels such that that smoke column reaches uh, several kilometers above ground. And that is usually where the moisture source is. And that's usually where the development of the cloud actually begins. It's it's on the order of of three to five kilometers above ground. So it's dry and hot near the surface. That maintains the fire. And then you have your moisture source in the mid-levels of the atmosphere. And at that point, as long as the updraft has made it high enough, you can produce condensation. And from then on out, the environment is, is pretty similar to your traditional dry thunderstorms or high cloud-based thunderstorms, if you will. And that cloud continues to develop and eventually tops out very near the boundary between troposphere and stratosphere. So that's just above cruising altitude of of aircraft.
1: And and talk about that. So aircraft, uh, these things can be a hazard, an aviation hazard, is that correct?
0: So piracy can be an aviation hazard in the sense that you would not want to fly into the updraft. So you can imagine if one develops over a fire, any sort of airborne fire suppression efforts, you know, these large tankers that come in and drop water, all of that shuts down and it makes it very dangerous for the firefighting effort. Uh, The smoke released by pyro CV is not quite as bad as the ash produced by volcanic eruption. So aircraft can fly through the smoke, but they need to stay away from the clouds.
1: What is, what is the difference, curious, between, say, the, the smoke composition and, say, the composition injected by a volcanic eruption, for example?
0: Right. So a volcanic eruptions, they have been well studied. And when a volcano erupts, there's a lot of ash that's released. And it's the, the particles in the ash that actually create the, the hazard to aircraft. But there's also a lot of sulfur dioxide gas. And so if that's, that volcanic material makes it into the stratosphere over time because when you're in the stratosphere, uh, once you put something there, it tends to persist. So, over time, that SO2 gas converts into tiny sulfate particles, and it's those sulfate particles that create the cooling effect. They reflect solar radiation back to space, and that's how you get the cooling effect from volcanic eruptions. Now, when you consider the the smoke source, the piracy it's a similar effect. You can reach similar altitudes. You can inject smoke into the stratosphere, where it also tends to persist. But the the base of it is is carbon. And various types of carbon will will actually absorb solar radiation. So once you put a layer of smoke in the stratosphere, solar radiation is being absorbed, and the layer of that smoke is actually heating itself. And so the smoke layer can continue to rise by, by itself heating. Once you create that instability from the heating, it will continue to rise and then it can persist even longer in the stratosphere. But the after effects of having these plumes have not been well studied. It's a source of of continuing questions in terms of what is the effect of of these smoke plumes in either cooling the the surface, does it have a volcanic-like effect, and ultimately, what is the role of piracy B in the climate system?
1: And I, I think that very question is how you and I came to have some discussions that led to this episode because I, I wrote something in Forbes magazine on the possibility that these sm- uh, fires and smoke and pyrocue and aerosols could perhaps not only impact the weather locally or regionally, but m- maybe even have some downstream global effects as well. And, and I, I, I know that you told me at that time that this is an area of active study.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very active study, especially given the events in Australia. Uh, we've now had two volcanic-scale smoke plumes in less than three years. Uh, In 2017, there was an event in uh, British Columbia, Canada in August that had roughly four to seven uh, updrafts of piracy that actually reached the stratosphere and, and injected smoke. The smoke plume from that event went on to encircle the entire northern hemisphere and persisted four to eight months, depending on which tools you're using to look at it. Wow. And now we've had a similar event in Australia that's produced another hemispheric smoke plume.
1: And, and, and I'm just curious, how do the pyrocumulonimbus in these Australian fires, I mean, how do they compare to previous PC, pyro-CBs, I mean, I mean on, on scale?
0: So up until this Australian fire season, that event that I mentioned in Canada was the benchmark. That was the benchmark for the biggest higher CB event and the, and the largest known smoke boom. Uh, we actually uh, have a methodology based on satellite remote sensing where we can estimate the mass of the smoke particles in the stratosphere. And so we showed that that was very similar to a moderate volcanic eruption, actually on the upper end of a moderate scale. So that was our benchmark. Now we go to just after Christmas in 2019 in Australia, Starting on about the 29th of December, uh, there were a lot of ongoing fires. So it's important to remember that fires were burning in Australia from November till now. But as we got to the end of December, there were a lot of very large and intense fires. And the weather conditions were perfect for the development of thunderstorms. And so on the the evening of the 29th, we started getting some fairly large updrafts, some clouds to develop which gradually turned into very large Pyro-CB that persisted through the night. And then on the 30th of December, a variety of fires produced these Pyro-CB clouds on and off through the entire day, again persisting into the next overnight period, and then again on the date during the 31st of December. So you have roughly a three-day period with on the order of 20 to 30 different Pyro-CB updrafts, and some fraction of them were directly injecting into the stratosphere. There's a lot of work to to be done to really identify, you know, how many were in play. But the end result from that event alone is a smoke plume in the stratosphere that exceeds that previous benchmark from Canada in 2017. And so that created a lot of interest, and that's where we got our first volcanic-scale plume. But it didn't end there. The whole sort of mechanism repeated itself again on January 4th. Now this was a shorter event, it was just a one evening, more typical duration-type event, but you still had a couple of very large piracy the updrafts that reached the stratosphere, and again injected another plume that wasn't quite as large as the 2017 event in Canada, but still very significant. And so by that point, you had smoke extending from roughly New Zealand to South America, all in the stratosphere from these two events combined, And when you look at the total of these two events put together, uh, you're exceeding some of the larger volcanic eruptions we've had uh, in recent years uh, in the globe. So then you fast forward another week or so, and that initial plume made its way all the way around the globe. And so now, just like 2017, we have a hemispheric smoke plume. It's encircled most of the southern hemisphere, at least in the middle and high latitudes. And we expect that to persist for quite a while. It'll be interesting to see how long it stays there.
1: One of the things that is just catching my ear as I listen to you, and we're talking with Dr. Dave Peterson from the Naval Research Lab, your reference points that you've given me are basically a 2017 event and this event. So... Is something different? I mean, are we seeing these massive pyrocumul? I mean, I mean, has has something changed related to climate change or something? You know, in a sort of a sort of climate variability sense, uh, because it, it it strikes me that the only reference points you're re- referring to are fairly recent.
0: Well, it is true that in in the past three years we've seen our two largest events, but pyro-CV have been injecting smoke into the stratosphere ever since this became a field of study. The, the issue is that this is a pretty young field. It wasn't until the late 1990s, early 2000s, where satellite observations evolved to the point where we could track these plumes uh, pretty easily in the, in the atmosphere. And so in those days, there were some mystery plumes that were uh, assumed to be of volcanic origin. But when you do the work and try to trace back where they came from, they were actually originating in areas that had a lot of active wildfires. and that's kind of how the phenomena was discovered. So, that was roughly around the year 2000 and since then we've seen several events that have produced stratospheric smoke plumes. It's just 2017 and 2019 is where we've gotten the really, really big one. So, when it comes to the question of, of changing climate, we know that in various regions worldwide there have been an increasing number of wildfires observed in, in recent years. This is, there are studies showing that in Western North America. Obviously, we know the Australian season is, is very large. But just because you're putting more fire on the landscape doesn't always equate to more uh, piracy, more thunderstorms, because it's the three-dimensional structure that matters. So you have to have an environment that supports the thunderstorm. So in a general sense, yes, putting more fire on the landscape would equate to more piracy be. but we've had big fires that have not produced piracy CB, such as the Camp Fire in 2018 here in California, some of these other uh, fires in the fall season in California. That's an environment that supports large fires by, from downslope wind events and that sort of thing, but that type of meteorology does not support thunderstorm development. So it really matters how the atmosphere is behaving at the time of the wildfire.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and learning all about pyrocumulonimbus. I, I know you've seen, if you go out there on Twitter or Google and Google pyrocumulonimbus, you'll see some fascinating uh, images that are coming from various places, either uh, on the ground or from satellite. And that's where I want to pivot my discussion now because you've mentioned this in some of your uh, previous discussions on the podcast. But talk about the observing techniques that you use in your work. I know you said you mentioned satellite data. I also want to get into a, a recent uh, field experiment, fire influence on regional to global environments and air quality. I guess it's called FireXAQ. So talk a little bit about the FireXAQ and your satellite work. I mean, what type of satellites are you using, what frequencies, et cetera. Well,
0: I, I want to start off by saying that the study of FireXAQ, one of the things that makes it very interesting to me is it's just very multidisciplinary. So obviously you have the weather aspect, you're, you're generating a thunderstorm, but you also have the fire community involved in understanding how fire behaves on the landscape, which is also tied to biology because of what's burning. And then when you consider the, the effect of the smoke being released by these thunderstorms, then you also have many questions related to chemistry. And so it's, to fully understand the mechanism, it involves people from multiple fields. Now, for, for most of the period of study, uh, the primary tool has been from space. You know, it's very difficult to get direct observations of the CB from aircraft. We'll get into that. But ever since the late 90s, we've had quite a variety of satellite tools available. So the easiest way to think about it is we have our, our standard weather satellites that give us imagery across the globe every few minutes. And that's, that's great for observing basics of PyrCV: how deep is how, how cold are the cloud tops where's the smoke going but there are other sensors uh, produced by NASA and NOAA that orbit the earth in a polar orbit so they come over a few times a day these have uh, have advanced techniques where you can actually examine the, the composition of the smoke uh, get a sense of what altitude the smoke is at There's even a tool called LIDAR, which is similar to weather radar, except it's a a laser beam. It's either pointed vertically up from the ground or down from space that can profile the atmosphere and give you a sense of the particle composition. So are we looking at fine smoke particles or more coarse ice? And what altitude is it at? When you put all this together, you can build a picture of the altitude of the smoke. You can follow it as it is transported it's in the stratosphere and you can get a sense of its lifetime and also its, its composition and the kind of the properties of those smoke particles and how they change. So that's been the primary source of the research that's been done say over the last 20 years or so.
1: No. I'm sorry. I, I I wanted to, before you move on to FireX, I just wanted to mention, if you're listening to the podcast right now, check out NASA Worldview. It's a website that I highly recommend. You can actually see some of these sm- smoke and fire uh, products in real time from some of the satellites and techniques that Dave just mentioned. So I just wanted to inject that. But uh, I know you're about to go on and talk about FireX AQ now.
0: Well, Worldview is a great site, and there's actually a, some products in there that are specific to C V smoke. Uh, so it's a great place to go check out for both the PyroCV phenomena and a variety of other things. But if we stick with the, the sort of NASA side of things, this summer in, in 2019, I was the lead weather forecaster for a large field experiment, and that was that pyre XAQ. It was joint NASA and NOAA. The goal was to study uh, the chemistry, the composition of smoke plumes of a variety of sizes and and from fires burning in various vegetation types to improve the the forecasting tools we use for smoke transport and and the overall air quality effect. But as part of this project, there were four different aircraft involved that produced a variety of measurements, whether it's, it's chemistry or particles within a cloud, or remote sensing techniques. There was the NASA ER-2 aircraft, which is a high-flying. It can fly above the weather, had a remote sensing payload on it. And then the flagship of the whole campaign was the NASA DC-8, and that's called the Flying Laboratory. So it really is what it sounds like. There's a lot, a lot of instruments on board an aircraft that's bigger than a 737 that allows you to measure all sorts of chemistry, whether it's aerosol particles, the smoke that we've been talking about, or, say, the gas phase component. So fires also release uh, CO2 and carbon monoxide and that sort of thing. So we have this very large fleet of aircraft available, and as a forecaster, we were looking for situations when fire cb might develop. And it turns out that the largest fire that we were uh, working with this summer was the Williams Flats fire in uh, Washington state. And we were watching this fire as it grew and looking at the weather conditions, and roughly three days out, we were able to pinpoint a specific day where we knew the environment would be conducive to piracy development. And so on that day, we were actually able to get the NASA DC-8 aircraft into the outflow of a PyroCB. This is at high altitude, so this particular PyroCB was not a monster like the Australian cases. It was it didn't quite reach the stratosphere, which is good for measurements because it was right at the altitude where the aircraft could get to. So we produced the most detailed observational set ever for uh, the smoke that is coming out of the PyroCB cloud, and also measurements within the top of the cloud itself. And so all of these are very important for understanding some of the bigger. Science questions we have with piracy.
1: So, what is Next, I mean, this sounds like a very extensive data set and a very unique opportunity. And I'm very familiar with some of the aircraft that you also mentioned. By the way, for those of you who heard Dave talk about the NASA ER2, uh, when you think about that particular plane, think about the old U2 spy planes uh, from back during Cold War days. That's essentially the same type of airplane we're talking about—very high altitude plane that NASA uses for simulating essentially some of the satellite platform uh, instruments that ultimately find their way to space but what what kind of measurements or data do we still need to advance our knowledge of pyro CB well so our hope is
0: with this data set collected in firex that we have some of those data the uh, the issue comes if we if we link this back to these big pyroCb events like the one I mentioned in 2017 and what we've seen in Australia the next step is really to to model the effect of these plumes in the atmosphere so to see if we can quantify what is the effect on, say, radiative balance? So if you're absorbing radiation, what, is, what effect does that have on, say, surface temperature? Do these really large smoke plumes have an effect on the weather itself? Can they impact the circulation of the atmosphere? So these are, are big questions that a lot of people are interested in answering. But in order to set up the, the modeling simulations you need to do these, you have to make a lot of assumptions. You have to make assumptions on the composition of the smoke. How much absorbing material do you have there that would affect the altitude of the smoke? What are the properties of the smoke? And what are the potential uh, for production of secondary particles based on chemical reactions over time as the smoke plumes persist in the stratosphere? So if we come back to FireX now, we have this data set, and we have direct observations of what actually comes out of the PyRCB after it's processed through the whole cloud so that gives us a starting point to hopefully refine some of these assumptions that are made in the modeling environment and to produce much better results if we try to do these, these bigger picture studies of the really large smoke plumes.
1: So there's quite a bit left in this field for for people like you that are studying uh, studying this phenomena. Dave, we're going to have to end it there. But before we do, uh, is there any place you can point the listeners to, any social media sites for you or the project or any websites?
0: Uh, So the best place for me is Twitter. Um, I'm at Dr. Dave Peterson. I try to post some material there when I can about these large smoke plumes. Uh, If you're interested in the FireX field experiment, there are several websites available. Uh, You can Google that. Um, And we also have a a page available through the Naval Research Lab. We've actually developed an algorithm from satellite to distinguish prior clouds from other convection, and so that's available as well.
1: Very nice. But before we get out of here, I can't end the episode without this week's Geek of the Week, Sean Kelly, a weather forecaster at Mill City Weather. Sean's favorite kind of weather is blizzards and severe storms, but the cold and snow won out as his most memorable weather event when winter storm Nemo pounded the northeast in 2013. He's a dedicated meteorologist who spends most of his time using multiple weather programs to track the weather and his love for his career keeps him up working hard from the first snowflake to the storm has passed. Congratulations, Sean, and keep up the great work. You can follow Sean on Twitter at SHAWN, capital M-C-W-L-O-W-E-L-L. And if you have someone that you think would be a deserving Geek of the Week, be sure to follow us on our social media sites on Twitter and Facebook. Dave, thank you once again for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. We'll see you next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.